Hello, hello, all of our energy industry professionals. I hope you had a very Merry Christmas and are ready to get back to work. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm with Young Professionals and Energy's Denver chapter. Ellen Scott, unfortunately, wasn't able to join us for our fourth interview, but rest assured, she'll be back for additional episodes soon. Our fourth episode gave us the opportunity to chat with George Sharp, Investment Manager at Marion Oil & Gas. George has had an awesome career, and we loved his insight into the industry and advice he has for young professionals. This was our first remote interview utilizing Microsoft Teams, so some of the sound quality was subpar, but rest assured we're working on improving that for our next virtual interview. Have a listen, and let us know what you think. Right. Welcome to another episode of Young Professionals in Energy podcast. My name is Mark Heineman and I'm with YPE here in Denver. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Jake Adamson. Jake, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Mark? Awesome. Uh, Ellen Scott, our typical other co-host, unfortunately can't be with us now. She's off trying to make a living uh, down in Houston right now. Meanwhile, Jake and I are sitting here in Denver. Pretty cold for Denver this time of year. Yeah, we got some snow this morning, but it's melting off yeah. already, so... It's pretty, pretty cool. So um, we've got a really cool guest today, George Sharp with Marion Oil and Gas. Uh, he's the investment manager over at Marion. George has been in Farmington, New Mexico for, uh, shoot, since the early 90s. He's native to Farmington. Actually, I, I was born and raised here. So, oh, there you go. Left for a minute and came back. Cool. Uh, George, you want to just uh, give give everyone a little intro about yourself? Uh, sure. Again, I was uh, uh, born and raised in Farmington, and my best friend was T. Greg Marion, who I happens to now be my boss uh, and has been for the last twenty some years. Um, anyway, we uh, we both went to Colorado School of Mines in Golden. We're roommates at the Cap Sig fraternity, raising hell uh, <laughs> all over Denver. And uh, when I got out, uh, went to work for Chevron in Denver in their uh, overthrust group. Uh, worked production and reservoir there over three years. Uh, got uh, transferred to Rangeley and spent uh, uh, a little bit of time in various functions. Uh, was watching pulling units for six months until I uh, got a 81 Packer stuck in the hole. And they figured they better get me away from moving parts. <laughs> Move me back into the office and uh, did production and, and reservoir and uh, actually corrosion engineering for six months. Uh, there in Rangeley. Uh, got transferred to Bakersfield and was a reservoir engineer on steam floods. Uh, was My next stop was going to be in San Francisco and got the offer to come back to home to Farmington and it sounded a lot better in San Francisco. So <laughs> here, here I am at Marion Oil and Gas. That's 28, great, George. 28 years later. Yeah, that's awesome. I went to School of Mines too. All right. Uh, yeah. Well, Go just or diggers. A, just about just about twenty seven years behind me, probably Jake. Huh? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Jake went to school mines, and I I grew up in Rangeley, which it's bizarre to find anyone that is either from there or has worked there. But, right. It's a pretty pretty small shop. You know, Rangeley yes, was uh, uh, three great years of your lives. You know, we uh, <laughs> uh, I had a lot of really good friends. You know, when you live in a little town like that, you make your own fun and you get together. You know, people a lot better than you do in a big city like Denver, you know, where you where everyone lives 45 minutes apart from each other. And you really don't have the interaction that you do in a small town like Rangeley. So we really enjoyed Rangeley. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, George, it sounds like you've 
had quite the rich and diverse career history. And I'm just curious, what inspired you to get started? Well, I actually, I always was, you know, math and science was always going to be an engineer. And when I went to mines in 1976, uh, petroleum engineering was the hot dot. And and I decided to be a purist for some stupid reason and went into civil engineering. (laughs) I didn't want to follow all the sheep into petroleum engineering. And Anyway, through the summers, I worked as a roustabout for Marion Oil and Gas, saw how fun the business looked and saw how much money the sheep were making and decided I better be a sheep. And so uh, by the time I made my decision, I was already in my going into my senior year. And so it was just as easy to, to finish that senior year and get a master's in petroleum, which is what I ended up doing, just staying at mines. My, my wife was also up at CU at the time and had a couple years left. And so it put us uh, in step in terms of uh, timing wise to graduate we weren't married at the time but uh, we were we were uh, doing things our parents would frown on (laughs) anyway uh it all worked out in the end awesome and uh, never no doubts on going into petroleum you know i actually do an engineering mentorship program for uh high school seniors have 20 or 30 kids a year that uh i teach how to fit a decline curve and they build a spreadsheet for cash flow economics and evaluate some property that's for sale and my recommendation to them is to uh, go into civil, or not civil necessarily, but mechanical, electrical, or chemical over petroleum, mainly from the standpoint that it gives a lot more flexibility. Oil and gas isn't the hot dot at the time. You got uh, other options. You know, any of those types of engineers could uh, come into the industry and work as a petroleum engineer, and uh, many are. No, I, I think that's great advice. I'm biased because that's the route that I took, you know, going into yeah. mechanical. Okay, are you mechanical? There you go. Petroleum, so. There yeah, you go. Absolutely. So, so. Yeah. Uh, engineering teaches you how to think, and at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. We're just uh, we're just uh, making good decisions, uh, trying to make some money. Yeah. George, you guys have done a lot of interesting stuff over at Marion, you know, family-run business, um, and having the job title of investment manager, uh, in my opinion, is pretty fun. Um, <laughs> why don't you tell it us about more important than it is, Mark? <laughs> I'm sure you do lots of important stuff. Why don't you give us, I guess, just an overview of some, perhaps the most interesting or profitable investments that you guys have done? What was the uh, background story? Yeah, let me let me uh, let me back up just a second, Mark, sure. if I can, and and just talk about Marion's history. They're a 60 year old uh, family owned company. Jay Gregg mortgaged his house and drilled his first well on some family minerals that they own here in the San Juan Basin and lucked out and hit it. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> stories don't always work out like that. But Rather be lucky than smart. Anyway, from there, he and uh, Bob Bayless, so you guys may know Rob Bayless there in Denver. Anyway, Bob was his father and he and Jay Gregg were partners and uh, they, they just scrapped it out. You know, they bought crap from the majors uh, that were in town. The, le- the San Juan Basin has been leased up for many years and, you know, about all you can get is the edges of it uh, as a little independent coming in late. And they they bought, you know, uh, pluggers from the majors and cut costs and, you know, made a living at it. And, you know, looking back, I that was at work then. I don't know that something like that works now to uh, to try to buy extremely marginal wells. And the reason it doesn't work now is because the plug-in and and rehab liabilities have become so expensive. You know, at the end of the day, again, the last man owning it is uh, uh, is not- kind of stuck with the burning house. Kind of stuck with it. 
anyway, that's the way they did it for forever. And uh, Jay Gregg uh, did very well at it, built up a bunch of cash and decided to go into exploration. They bought 100,000 acres worth of leases or paid for 100,000 acres worth of leases and and had this big Entrada exploration program on the south end of the basin. Drilled 10 straight dry holes using uh, money from Avon, actually. Uh, Jamie Clark, Elmridge Resources, uh, they came in and funded it. And uh, <laughs> we, we ended up with nothing on it. We've, we've invested, <laughs> speaking of exploration, we've invested in a, at least uh, 10 or 12 other deals at a small piece, you know, just hoping for the home run. And We've struck out every time, so I'm not sure expirations again the game for for anybody that's uh, small and <laughs> the faint of heart. <laughs> oh, it is not or faint of wallet. Right. My dad, my dad calls that gambler's ruin. Right, where you you're uh, going out to drill five wells, each of them has eighty uh, percent chance of success, and you drill five dry, <laughs> dry holes. Right. Well, yeah, uh, ours didn't have eighty percent chance of success, but something like that. <laughs> we thought the math would work, but it didn't. So uh, you're right. It is gambler's ruin. You know, the bigger's gambler's ruin, and, and this has happened a couple of times, is you make a bunch of money and you feel like, you know, you're going to, you know, the next dollar you're going to spend, you're, you're going to make even more and more. And, and you feel like compelled to, during the good times, keep plowing that money back in on marginal deals. Uh, one of the questions you're asking, what's our best deal? Some of our you know, the worst decisions we've made over time is during the good times, when when we had a lot of money, a lot of cash flow, we frittered it away. We drilled a bunch of crap that should never have gotten drilled, uh, marginal wells that, you know, we uh, were overly optimistic on what the reserves might have been. And so uh, been better off burying that money in the uh, in the ground. What, George, what do you think motivates some people to, I guess, rapidly reinvest funds like that rather than looking for better opportunities or being patient? You know, it's uh, uh, in our case, it was a matter of, you know, the expiration deal was just Jay Greg. I wasn't even with the company when he made the decision to get started in that direction. Yeah, uh, I was the investment manager when we when we uh, drilled a bunch of uh, marginal wells and we had some good wells and the good wells, you know, covered some of the bad wells or most of the bad wells in general, we, we, we've done all right, but uh, there was a lot of money spent. And I think it's the fact that first off at the time, you know, gas prices are six, seven bucks, oil prices are, you know, 70 to a hundred bucks. And you think it's going to be that way for forever. And so you run your economics in the good times, uh, assuming it's always going to be good. You know, especially if you get levered during those times and the tide goes out, you know, you can uh, find yourself naked looking around at the crowd. So we were lucky that we have always managed our debt and uh, have been a couple of times where we're uh, staring at the cliff on on debt. Uh, Might talk about one of those stories here in a bit. But uh, uh, for the most part, uh, we've been smart about not not getting, not taking on too much debt. Absolutely. Talking about drilling dry holes and not having great success for exploration, but you did send over a couple of notes uh, beforehand and mentioned one pretty cool story uh, where you turned $360,000 into 10 million. Yeah, that, that one, uh, that was my that worst success. <laughs> or my most, <laughs> and it was one that uh, was born out of a significant failure, right? I, uh, we started, Soon after I took over as investment manager, we started uh, looking at Clearinghouse and EnergyNet wasn't there at the time. Clearinghouse was the was the big uh, hot dot. I started looking at Clearinghouse auctions and uh, 
went to uh, went to my very first auction and uh, had a top of 250 grand. And uh, after picking my nose, uh, so 200, 250 grand was the most that you were allowed to. So, allowed yeah, that to was spend. what J. Greg and T. Greg had, had, had given me the wink and the nod at. And uh, I don't know why I went to 360. To this day, it was <laughs> just just bad. Bad decision, caught up in the auction frenzy. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those down in Houston, but it's uh, they don't even have live auctions anymore. Yeah, I was good. I've I've seen them happen. And for our listeners, why don't you describe kind of what they were? Right, you're releasing well, these tracks from the yeah, state or, I mean, if, or distressed assets. Uh, yeah, if you're familiar with the way Clearinghouse used to do it, as uh, they you know they'd have 200 lots, each lot being a property could be one well, could be leasehold, could be whatever for sale and and they're all being sold on the same day in a big big hotel banquet room with 200 people and guy up there hey batter batter and <laughs> and me a little you know little uh young engineer uh all nervous out in the crowd uh got caught up in the frenzy and so i knew whoever was bidding against me was in one section of the room because that's where the you know the other barker was saying you know every time i got out bid it was down there so <laughs> I actually, after I got it, I just started feeling sick to my stomach. And so I go down to that, that end of the room and they're already on the next lot going. And I just start yelling, who was second on that last? (laughs) And I was literally going to let them have it for the 350 and buck up the 10 grand out of my pocket. But luckily I never caught them and Jay Greg didn't fire me. And so, so what'd you end up buying? It all worked out. Uh, it was a uh, little Morrow gas well with 320 acres uh, with it. And we ended up drilling uh, three more uh, vertical Morrow uh, wells. And now the Bone Springs and Wolf Cramp have taken off. And we've actually sold that property, but still have a significant override. Uh, and they're just uh, just staking those next wells. So anyway, it all it worked out on that one. It, it doesn't right. always. Being stupid doesn't always work. <laughs> um, so, George, you've, you've got a YouTube video that you shared with us before the interview. And then uh, I guess you've done a couple of other speaking engagements. Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of your outreach to the energy community? Yeah, I actually uh, started again in the schools uh, here in yeah. Farmington. I've uh, I had this engineering program that I've been doing for 25 years, um, probably 10, 15 years ago. I started a program called uh, uh, Energy Week where we coordinate bringing in uh, middle schools, eighth graders, and spend a couple hours with them uh, talking about oil and gas. Uh, it's, a, it's a big, big effort because we have probably 15 middle schools. And so all the companies, local companies, will take a day and host a school, you know, and teach them about the, the industry. There's 15 middle schools in Farmington? Uh, there's four, but we go to Kirtland, Aztec, Bloomfield, oh, okay. Newcomb. Uh, all, all the surrounding communities. Yeah, all the surrounding. Fifteen is too high. It's uh, it takes up two full weeks, so it's it's actually wow. ten uh, okay. middle schools in the area. But uh, again, it's a big big outreach area, and I've been opinionated, Mark, since uh, <laughs> since I was born, and not afraid to share it. Uh, <laughs> well, we've got that in common, George. And so I've written, actually was writing a monthly article on oil and gas for the energy insert to the local newspaper for a while. But I've uh, written a bunch bunch of, uh, again, opinion articles mainly on 
various aspects of the industry from methane emissions to fracking to climate change and uh, have gained a number of presentations on all of those to industry groups, leadership groups, leadership New Mexico, leadership San Juan. Most recently, uh, jumped into the video making side of it uh, just to have a more concise, easier to share method of getting the uh, getting the message out. Absolutely. Well, I liked your, uh, you had a slide on the video that said we need an all of the above approach. And then you listed a bunch of stuff from expanding wind and solar to battery and storage technologies. But you made a really interesting point in your video also about how rapidly, or I guess how slowly wind and solar and other renewable projects are expanding throughout the U.S. And I mean, your quick back of the envelope calculation said 238 years to replace all of our current energy usage. I found that really interesting. Do, do you see that speeding up or slowing down? Or Oh, I think it's going to speed up. And it, what blows me away, Mark, is that nobody else has looked at that map. Nobody else has <laughs> pointed to that. I mean, you know, the wind. I, I have heard that at mines, they, they make you calculate uh, the land mass required to replace petroleum in the U.S. and on, on your first day as a freshman. And the answer is uh, not enough. Not enough. <laughs> well, it would be, uh, I think it would take more than half of the continental U.S. if you went all with wind farms. Uh, mm -hmm. the, I mean, you'd have to cover the entire U.S. or half of it anyway with wind farms. Solar is a little more compact. You know, the, the reality is that the, the, the public and some politicians you know, just feel they can snap their fingers. And if we just quit producing oil and gas, then all of a sudden we're going to get our energy from wind and solar. And and man, that the math that just doesn't, doesn't add up. It doesn't add up, no. So, so I am actually a, a believer that man impacts the planet and that we should do our best to mitigate that impact, and, sure. including controlling, you know, our carbon emissions uh, to the extent that we can. But we we can't just quit using energy. That's just not going to happen. Um, you know, absolutely. One of the oh. most powerful things that I thought was on that video, I actually was, well, just the intro was giving people a feel for how important energy is, you know, for how much work you get out of a gallon of gas. And the fact that if you paid, man, it's 500 man hours in a gallon. If you're paying 10 bucks an hour, that's $5,000 a gallon. People just, you know, they just take cheap energy for granted and take what it does for us for granted and think that they're going to always have what that energy provides, uh, no matter what the future holds. And that's, again, that's just not the case. Right. People, people really, they don't think when they flick the lights on or if they're trying to keep their house at adequate temperature, like that's something that I feel most, if not all of us have experienced since the time we were born. So it's something that we've grown so accustomed to. Right. Yeah. It's just, a, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, entitlement, if you will. We just don't even, we can't even think that it would ever be any different. You know, we're just entitled to that. I guess, do you, do you see that culture changing? Everyone just kind of assumes that, you know, they, they're going to have an electric bill and, and a fuel cost, but, and that cost never really goes away over time. But I mean, the only way that I can think that it might is if, you know, we generated such an inexpensive form of electricity or, you know, just had hundreds of nuclear power plants all over the country that were operating super efficiently that, I don't know. I'm pontificating. I, yeah, I don't. I, Jake, I don't see it. Uh, I see it getting worse. Uh, it's certainly gotten worse in the last 10 years with, uh, you know, the uh, Green New Deal being proposed and, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren ready to ban fracking her first day in office. You know, I, yeah. I, I just can't imagine, you know, 
somebody that's running for the president of the United States not having a better understanding of what the impact of that would be. And what do you think that we as industry professionals can do to um, promote this all of above, all of the above approach and to have a more reasonable outlook for our energy portfolio? Ah, Jake, man, I do not know what the answer is. You know, that we, we beat ourselves up as an industry for doing a poor job of communicating everything we've done. But the reality is that anytime we try to communicate something that's, you know, the public sees it, well, you're just the industry. You know, we don't believe you. I'm, I'm actually knee deep in, in putting a video together on fracking. And I don't think one out of 10 people is aware that the Obama, the Obama administration studied fracking and they concluded, Obama's EPA concluded that fracking uh, doesn't affect water. You know, it's not getting into water. It just isn't. Now, you may have a spill at the surface. Uh, you know, you can make a mess from operator error. And when you do, you clean it up. But the the fracking process itself isn't getting there. And so I don't know how you get that message out to where people will actually believe it. One of the recommendations I had from my liberal family who saw early versions of the Understanding Energy video, the climate change video, was to depoliticize it. You know, I when I was talking about the opponents wanting to ban fracking, I had a picture of Elizabeth Warren in there, you know, with her headlines, you know, ready to ban fracking. Well, they said, no, you know, you just lost everybody, you know, that's a that's a Democrat. You know, they aren't going to listen. As soon as you start making it political, you know, you're losing the message. And uh, as soon as you also don't give at least validity to the feelings and the the points that someone else is making. And one of the arguments that I don't think is going to win the day is just that, hey, climate change is a hoax and we don't yeah, know about it. Uh, uh, yeah, I, totally I, agree. I think we lose credibility uh, by not at least acknowledging that, hey, it, you know, it may not be, man, may not be the reason, you know, things seem to be getting hotter quicker, but we do know we put more CO2 in the air. We do know that CO2 is, is a global warming gas. And so, you know, we just might be affecting it somehow, you know, and at least acknowledge that there's a chance that we're doing it. And then you might have a chance of, you know, getting people that are convinced. And I think the majority of our populace is convinced that uh, man's impacting global warming or climate change. Yeah, um, absolutely. George, some of the other recommendations you had for an all of the above approach was uh, battery and storage technologies and micro nuclear plants. Batteries have been very popular for a long time. And, you know, everyone says that we need better energy density in batteries to bring the cost down. With the winning technology being lithium right now, simply replacing everything that we have in our current infrastructure. You made a point in the video that there's probably not enough lithium on the planet or accessible or easily accessible right now. More, more math. Everything. Yeah, more math that people aren't doing. So right. a Tesla, a Tesla battery has 26 pounds of lithium. Uh, there are... By the 2030, they're forecast to be uh, 2 million cars in the world, which would take 26 million pounds of, uh, of lithium to power those cars. And there's 13 million pounds is all the resource that's available. And that's, <laughs> and that's just for cars. That doesn't power the grid or anything else, you know? Yeah. And so it's got to be... That's kind of crazy, isn't it? It I mean, is but, crazy. If, if that's true or if, you know, the, our accessibility... And, I don't have great knowledge. In fact, I'd say I'm pretty ignorant about where the best lithium reserves are. You know, everyone says China and South uh, America and China. Yeah, South America and China. 
um, you know, and I, I haven't done any of the research myself, but I, it, it sounds very reasonable that there's that much lithium on the planet. And if we can't build batteries to put in all of the cars or have a storage option, then, I mean, what are the alternatives, right? Yeah, Replacing them storage, with liquid fuels that we manufacture? You got to differentiate between battery technology technology and storage technology. Um, sure. You know, one, one storage technology is to uh, take your, you know, your hydropower and when you've got excess uh, electrons, you, you turn it the other way and you pump. You know, you pump that water back up into your lake. And then when you uh, need the power at nighttime, when the sun's not shining, you, you know, you let it run back through your water. Well, that's, you know, they're looking at that. I don't know what the efficiency losses on that are or compressing it, putting it into the ground, having it come back, you know, having ways that you can store that as potential energy to use when the time comes, those are only going to work where you're close to a dam where you can do that or you're, sure. you know, Large water close, source. Yeah. You're close to a, a resource. With an elevation it's, change. Yeah. It's, it's not going to, you're not going to be able to use that technology or, or those types of storage ideas all over the place. They're going to be site specific. And, and in a site specific case, they're going to be able to come up with ways potentially to store energy, you know, for the, the times they need it. But Doing something universal, doing something for New York City, you know, if they have a, you know, big storm that comes through and lose power, you know, you're not going to, uh, don't think you're going to have that much storage for a, a Tokyo <laughs> or New York City. Yeah. So. Yeah, George. Uh, another thing that I really like that you talk about in your video is these positive impacts of uh, the oil and gas industry. Um, I think one of the examples you highlighted would be um, when you keep this production domestic, the benefit goes to, say, your coworker Steve, who has four kids and lives locally, versus yeah. something like that. To, to the 9.8 million people that work in America to produce it. Right. right. Yeah. It, it's a, an amazing industry. You know, it, it lifts people out of poverty, um, energy. And so Absolutely. I was wondering, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, and then and maybe if we could tie in the ET Braddock project, which I just think is really interesting. Um, this is potentially a production well that will be drilled um, on U.S. steel property? Yes, on U.S. steel property. Actually, they, they burn $20 million a day in gas, so we've got a, got a uh, immediate outlet for the gas, and part of the negotiations was the gas contracts and all that. So, uh, so, and forgive us, George, but for our listeners, you guys did a – I guess we can back up a little bit. You guys did a JV project with we, – we, we did. Let let me uh, let me answer the first question first, and we'll get sure. to sure, sure, sure. Getting ahead of us. We got them stacked. <laughs> so, in 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 terms of the the benefits of oil and gas to uh, the United States, um, the first off is uh, the, the again the one of the more telling I think slides in that video presentation is the historic uh, U.S. oil production and consumption, and the fact that. You know, during the uh, 80s and into 2005, we weren't drilling enough wells. Oil price was was low, was down below 40 bucks a barrel. We weren't drilling enough wells to replace our production. And and so uh, we just kept buying. We just bought it from overseas. You know, our imports were as much as 70 uh, percent right. of consumption. And so uh, if we ban oil and gas here in the U.S., it's not going to stop us from consuming because we can't stop consuming. There's no other option. You know, we still need to fill your car up with gas. And even if it's an electric car, you know, over 60% of 
uh, electrons come from carbon energy. So you're just not going to quit using. We can't quit yep. using uh, production. And so the question is, where are you going to get it? Would you rather buy it from yourself, from, you know, Tom, your neighbor or your coworker or whoever? Or would you rather buy it from Sheikh Alibaba, you know, who's going to use it for who knows what? One way or another, though, you're going to buy it because you have to have it. You know, you got to fly airplanes, got to drive cars, got to heat your home, got to run, you know, steel mills uh, run on on coal and natural gas. It's going to be generations before it, it changes to where they run a steel mill on electricity. It takes a lot of heat to melt ore. It takes a lot of heat to, <laughs> to melt ore. Yeah. It does, right? So the the bottom line is that you're going to get it from somewhere. And so do you want to have a, you know, a huge trade deficit and huge huge national debt, you know, as we send all our money overseas, or would we rather keep that money here, employ people here, uh, make the United States a better place, you know, so the the industry just gets beat up. It just has a horrible name, you know, in the in the public community as being, you know, evil and, and you know, evil big oil, trying to steal everybody's money, yeah. and everybody addicted to oil the exxon thing is a perfect example the lawsuit against <laughs> the exxon. lawsuit yeah yeah that so. the judge basically just threw out right he threw out two of the three and i don't know i guess i i may be a, a couple of days late in my mail i know that they had dropped two of the three allegations but still yeah are, are following through on one but uh one of a minor uh infraction that i'm sure exxon will and exxon was mad Actually, it was the 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 prosecutors, the or the the the, the states that were suing, uh, withdrew those two allegations, and right. Exxon wanted that to go to a ruling and wanted the judge to rule against them. You know, didn't appear. You know that that it was a positive statement saying no, this is not being done. Versus, you know, the aggrieved parties, aggrieved parties, whatever that word is, you know, back <laughs> yeah. off backing off their allegations, you know, kind of quietly, they Exxon wanted some noise made about how ridiculous these allegations were to start with. That's, that's not going to, not going to happen now, at least not to the extent it would have. Sure. So I guess circling back to the ET Braddock project. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a deal that has, uh, in many of our deals, uh, bigger deals, that we've come across. We were in and out of California in a big way with uh, uh, Tim Marcus and uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name of Benico was his company um, before they before they went under. But we we did a lot in California with him, and the the opportunity to do that just kind of came through relationships, came out of the back door. And uh, as did the C.T. Braddock deal, we've been buying minerals. We, when when the shale place kicked in in the early 2000s, Marinol and Gas is a small operator. We have a $10 million a year budget. And so, hell, you can't drill, you know, you can drill one well with that, which uh, doesn't really work tough, on the shale Tough to compete with the economies of yeah, scale that the other yeah. guys are doing, right? And, and so really tough. And so we just started buying minerals in the shale plays, figuring that that was a way to, to play it as a small scale. Still get the exposure, but have yep. a smaller capital cost for the entry. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, some of the people that we were doing business with, uh, his, this guy's father-in-law had put in the HVAC for this little Muni, uh, golf course in, adjacent to the U.S. steel mill Edgar Thompson plant. 
and they couldn't pay him. So he ends up owning the golf course and the minerals. <laughs> and, and so they'd been oh, wow. working, they'd been working for four or five years trying to negotiate a deal between EQT or Rice or Range. They had them all interested in talking with with U.S. Steel to uh, yeah. to drill a well there, um, or actually put a pad in there. And then 2014, gas prices cratered and they all went away and these guys uh, needed an operator and they knew we operated. And so they somehow convinced us to get into it. We still aren't sure it's a good deal, but, <laughs> but we're going forward with it anyway. So, uh, and so you guys, are you guys the operator then or you're, we are the big... operator. We okay. are the operator then. And you're drilling a gas well. We're drilling, uh, starting with one Marcellus. We've got uh-huh. room to drill as many as 36. Uh, oh, wow. We're, we're Again, and against, it's going to be providing the gas directly to the steel mill. Yes. It'll to use provide. this heat for their product project, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, that is the game plan. And we'll be able to sell into the market if at the point in time we drill enough wells, we're producing in excess of that. Right. But but our game plan is to is to drill a Marcellus. Uh, we've got some pew clauses in our leases, so we've, we've got to uh, ultimately drill the Utica to hold it. Uh, get a few wells drilled. Get the... Uh, operations running, get the agreement because there's some complexities in the agreement with U.S. Steel. Get those ironed out in a in an ongoing operational scenario that we can then take to somebody with enough money to develop the whole pad at once to absolutely uh, sell sell the project to. On ongoing things to work out with that. I'm sure U.S. Steel's attorneys had a lot to say about the agreement. Uh, yeah, actually, it was one uh, one little nerd procurement engineer who I negotiated <laughs> with. And I say that, I say he's a nerd. He's a really good nerd. I mean, he was he was tenacious in the negotiations and he wouldn't take anything to his attorneys until uh, he had a deal that he felt they could live with. And he, went, he wasn't going to get beat up over bringing this uh, proposal to him. So yeah, we, uh, we've been through a few circles with the attorneys. Excellent. George, we just got a couple more questions that we ask all of our uh, guests. I guess there's two that I'd like to touch on. Uh, number one, have you ever believed in anything to be true about your industry or our industry, uh, but had your mind changed? Well, I at one thought thought we were running out of oil, and wondered. I mean, actually, back <laughs> in the '70s, when when we were going into the business, that was one of the concerns. Was uh, this is a short time uh, industry because you're going to run out of fuel and have to do something different. And that has been, uh, obviously with the discovery of, uh, multi-stage fracking and opening up the shale resources, there is an end to it, but it's not in, not in my grandkids lifetime. There's yeah. plenty of mm-hmm. plenty of oil in the world. Yeah. So that would be, that would be one. There are probably others, but, uh, uh, St- stick with that one. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> stick with that Absolutely. one. Yeah. And also, George, uh, what advice can you share to someone like me who's just starting their career? Uh, you know, I've got uh, half a dozen lessons I've learned, many of them the hard way. Um, number one, exploration is for the other guys, <laughs> not for you. Come in after the fact and do the development drilling. Uh, number two is when times are good, you know, don't feel like you have to keep investing. You know, don't chase. How would it be, you know? Good money after bad is when you've been losing and you keep betting. This is where you're winning and you uh, decide to bet it all away. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of the opposite I'll, of that. Always have a little bit of backup. I always have a little always bit of backup, which which ties into the next one is uh, be careful of going into debt. You know, make sure you don't get in too deep and and no matter what happens that you're able to uh, 
to to handle that debt. Those would be my my major ones. You know, as an engineer or as a as a professional in the industry, uh, you know, stay uh, stay flexible and be able to do as many jobs as you can, and and uh, understand you know more facets of the industry. There are you know I, I've done eight different jobs, you know, from corrosion engineering to supervising the rig and. Uh, uh, to negotiating gas contracts to to whatever, and so there's a lot of a lot of different ways to be involved in the industry and a lot of different ways to add value. Yeah, I think that's great. Awesome. If we could ask you one thing to think about, what keeps you up at night? Any trends that scare you? Uh, the the climate change uh, debate and the how ignorant the general public is uh, about the realities of our energy situation. Uh, the fact that you've got presidential candidates that don't understand the industry enough to know that we still have to have oil and gas for a while and to have oil and gas, you still got to frack wells. It scares me how naive the public is in that in that sense. And and so it creates a lot of risk for the industry. Who really knows? Who really knows what's going to happen two years from now? Yeah. It's going to be exciting to watch though. Yeah, it is going to be exciting to watch. I think okay. I, my prediction is that, you know, even if an Elizabeth Warren gets elected, she'll she'll have to back off. Much as uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has in New Mexico. You know, you go right. 5 years 5 years back and look at her website when she was a senator and it was she was ready to ban fracking. Well, you know, with 30 uh, full third of the state income you know, coming directly from oil and gas, uh, she <laughs> really pretty poor political move. And, uh, her 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 desire to have free education in New Mexico f- for college absolutely doesn't happen without uh, without oil and gas there. So she's recognizes, although she she still you know has uh, aggressively pursuing reducing our carbon footprint and and capturing methane and stiffening the rules. She's not trying to get rid of the industry. You know, she yeah. realizes she needs the industry. And, and I'm hopeful that if uh, someone from the, the far left of the Democrats gets elected, that they'll have that same recognition uh, before they get too extreme. Couldn't agree more. So, well, George, if uh, if some of our listeners want to get a hold of you, what's, what's the best way? Reach out on LinkedIn e- or shoot uh, you an email? E- email is best. G Sharp. Uh, that's S-H-A-R-P-E. G-S-H-A-R-P-E at Marion. M-E-R-R-I-O-N dot B-Z as in boy zebra, I guess for business or something. <laughs> uh, I imagine we could get that written down somewhere. Yeah, we'll okay. throw in the show notes. And, and, I would, and I wouldn't mind you, I guess I'd ask you to uh, include the link for the uh, the climate change video. Oh, sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely. Okay. We'll throw it in there. Okay. Yeah. Cool, George. Well, this has been great. We really appreciate the time. And right. uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk to you again soon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, good Thank luck you so much, George. I hope uh, if you're out there listening, I hope you didn't fall asleep too far back. If you did, wake <laughs> up. It's time to end. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Right. Thanks, George. Talk Bye. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, George Sharp. I've watched his educational energy video, and it's fantastic. The link is in the show notes, and we highly recommend that you give it a view. I also listed George's lessons learned in the show notes because, number one, they're really good pieces of advice, and number two, I love tips from industry mentors because they've helped me in my career, and I imagine they'll help you too. If you're interested in getting involved with YPE, don't be afraid to reach out. We're always looking for partners, sponsors, and advocates from the industry to get young professionals together. If you like the episode, leave us a review, send us suggestions about how to make the podcast better, and most importantly, if you know anyone who wants to chat shop with us, please have them reach out. We'd love to hear from you. 
Bis zum nächsten Mal.